Hi, I'm Gerd Leonhard, Futurist in Zurich, Switzerland. Welcome to Gerd Talks, my new bi-weekly video and audio talk show about the future. So let's dive right in into the, uh, into the meat of things. So working like a robot, right? Uh, I love this. Uh, we did this years ago, this actually about six years ago. And it's really interesting to, to see how working like a robot has become a big discussion. And working like a robot to me means doing commodity work, you know, grunt work, donkey work, some people call it, um, but also routine work. And I look at my work and I say, you know, I do quite a bit of routine work. Um, and so that's fact-checking, research, filing, and I'm trying to find more technology to do that work. But I've come to the conclusion that the less I do of the robotic work, the more valuable my work is. And I think we can safely say, as people are looking at the future, that robots and machines and AI will do the commodity work. And the question, of course, is what is exactly the commodity work, right? Um, by the way, I do want to say before we dive into the meat of things here, um, I really do want to send my peaceful wishes to uh, people in the Ukraine and, and to the Russian government to put an end to this. Um, and on my, on my side, I've been quite disgusted with how all that is coming down. So let's, uh, let's send some peace this way and make sure that we can return to a world that is based on some different values than what we're seeing right now. Um, second scene of the uh, robotic issue. You know, basically, I think if you work like a robot and if you act like a robot, a robot will displace you and replace you. For example, thinking like a robot, okay? And I do a lot of work in marketing and, and uh, advertising as well. And sometimes I can, can't help feeling that people think of marketing as being like a mousetrap, you know, building a better mousetrap. Uh, you know, think of like a robot. Or when you think about the metaverse, you know, the idea of living in a virtual reality that uh, is better than real life. And that, that can be quite interesting to people uh, who find their real life not so good, I understand. But, you know, if you act like a robot, a robot will replace you. And if you live like a robot, this is called the sofalarity, right? This is a place to where you're basically ordering everything online and you're never going outside, right? That reminds me of some Silicon Valley scenarios. Yeah, maybe that's not something you want to do too much. Uh, if you live like a robot, uh, where's that going to end up? But, you know, we're living in, in a world that's heading this way, right? Technology everywhere. And I want to give you a brief summary on what I think that means for 2030 uh, and which way we're going in 2030. And the first real bullet point here is that uh, I think most of the commodity work will be done by machines. So that's fact-checking, financial planning, scheduling, uh, you know, the stuff that we're doing manually now. And you, you can see the beginning of that with Gmail, smart responses, and automation, and Google Maps, and Slack, and so on. But machines are going to learn how to do that. The second point is that most of the new jobs will be in the cloud. And that's already happening. So this is not just programming, but customer service, and of course, uh, engineering, and all of the things that we're doing currently in real life. Uh, they're going to move to the cloud. And that is a good move, but of course, it will really shake up a social security system around the world. In 10 years, we're going to have 90% of the world connected, roughly eight and a half, nine billion people, twice as much as today. Uh, and there'll be one billion remote workers. I got these facts from various sources. I'll make a link to that later on. One billion people working remotely. And, and that is going to bring up the competition of us on a global level, but also the availability of work uh, and the creation of new jobs. And uh, this is a number that a lot of people are throwing around and you know, we can discuss it later, but 
many people are saying 85% of all new jobs in 2030 are not even invented yet. Think back to roughly 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there were no jobs in social media, and now 21 million people work in social media, invented new jobs. And are we going to invent more jobs? Our kids will invent new jobs. And that is for sure, you know, the demand for cognitive skills like emotional intelligence, EQ, is growing exponentially. You know, anything that machines can't do. And if you have kids, you've got to think about that, especially when they're younger. You know, we have to think about how we're going to get them ready for the real world. Well, we're not going to get them ready by necessarily for them to become great programmers, even though that's always good, of course, but to be better humans and to have EQ, not just IQ. As we, as we can see right now, we have a lot of IQ from some people, but very little EQ, and that's something that needs to change. And finally, I think this is kind of a cartoon, you know, as to what is happening in the COVID-inspired days of working. As we work from home, it seems like we're working all the time, right? I don't know about you, but it seems like the work uh, amount of work has increased because of us staying at home. And general statistics are showing roughly two hours more per day because we're working from home. But finally, maybe working less will become a real option in the next decade because technology will allow us to uh, use technology in a smarter way. And here the stats show clearly here that uh, we're moving to the point to where exponential cost reduction is happening. Whether it's going to be about battery power, about genetic engineering, about genome editing, about uh, LEDs, about pretty much everything. And that could be sort of the beginning of the sort of scarcity economy for, for that to end. Nothing is scarce anymore. Like energy will be abundant. And some people call that the Star Trek economy, right? That's been an interesting uh, chapter on this. Roughly 20 years old, that debate about the economics of Star Trek, right? You should have a look. You know, once we move into a world where everything is abundant, abundant music, abundant energy, abundant healthcare, 10, 15, 20 years, do we have to work in the same way? Or do we just have to make sure that we're going to distribute the fruits of our labor in a much better way? Here in Switzerland, we had a vote on this two years ago, the basic income guarantee. And get this here in Zurich, where I live, 51% of people voted to have a basic income for every Swiss person, roughly 2,200 a month. And of course, the initiative didn't pass, but you know, we can safely say that this kind of idea of a you know, working less, having more purpose, and having equal distribution of money, that seems like a good idea. It's probably too early uh, in political terms to bring that forth. But there have been great trials in Canada, I think on the U.S. West Coast as well, uh, and also in India and many other places, including Switzerland, on what that could mean. I think that going, that's going to be an interesting ticket to the future for my kids, you know, not having to work, but choosing to work. The other thing that's going to happen, I think, is we're going to see a future to where we're going to get a social dividend from the companies who are making so much money, like Facebook and social media companies, with our data. Uh, kind of helicopter money, right? Dropping down from the sky, so to speak. I mean, Facebook is making $320 million uh, uh, revenues per day, maybe not that much anymore, given their recent demise, and $150 million profit per day. Uh, are we going to have some sort of automation tax or digitizing tax? Uh, there's been debates of that, of that in the European Parliament. I think it makes sense, but it's a huge topic. I grant that it, you know, obviously it's a big discussion. One of the main concerns about uh, the future of work in my mind is the fact how much work is going to be automated. 
so that basically what is happening is that uh, machines are going to get faster and quicker and they can take over jobs like what we used to do in the factories, the welding the machines are doing now, driving a car, flying an airplane, plane, doing the root canal or maybe even implants. I saw a Japanese video with a robot doing a dental implant, very scary. <laughs> but this is the result of what I call the mega shifts. And I've spoken about the mega shifts for years. And five years ago, six years ago, in my book, the mega shift is the third chapter. And you can download it for free at megashifts.digital. But basically, the mega shifts are impacting everything that we do currently, whether it's about data, whether it's about virtuality, whether it's about disintermediation, for example, in media. And what that means is that as we're moving into the future of these mega shifts, everything around us is being impacted by these factors, automation, virtualization, and cognification. And I would not say that machines have become intelligent or should or may become intelligent, but they're definitely becoming smart, parentheses, right? Machines are no longer that stupid, even though when you use Google Maps, you wonder about that sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's quite clear where we're going about this. You know, machines are learning and deep learning and machine learning is driving all of that stuff in banking, in financial uh, affairs, in healthcare, and of course, in governance and so on. So now we're moving into the future where machines are becoming intelligent. Right? Uh, and where we are moving into the future where all of a sudden that is becoming uh, something that we do all the time. We think about what machines can do with this. What are they up to? Which way can they be going? And basically we're seeing this this kind of challenge of automation, right? I mean, you can you can see that here now, this kind of idea that machines will first kind of come in a little bit and then take over and kick us out. And I have a question about that, if we should be worried about this. My view is that we probably should be a little bit worried about that. We've got to think about the social consequences. And we have to think about making a collectively flourishing society that isn't just all going to be about efficiency. Maybe it'll be a little bit like this, and that's my hope for the future, that we can collaborate the osmosis of technology and humanity. This is a great scene I've been using for some time about the robots on, on the high rise and the, uh, and the workers with them. Maybe that's kind of the ticket, you know, the co collaboration of the two. And then we have scenes like this, right? Vertical farming, where the robots are doing the harvesting. And yes, right now that's way too expensive. Uh, the machines aren't perfect. In fact, they're pretty imperfect. But I can see that happening. You know, pretty much every major city around the world could easily have vertical farming and, of course, a factory that, that does uh, cultured meat. And that could solve our food problem. And I've tasted it before. It's not as bad as you would think. But, I mean, looking at the trends here, right, just to kind of show the graph here, uh, Bill Gates and Richard Branson have invested global meat consumption, we may be looking at a future to where all of a sudden the way we're going to eat will be meat from the lab, you know, cultured meat will be uh, uh, vegetables from, from the vertical farm. So very big changes. And I think there's going to be a lot of new work there uh, because the farms will be completely automated, of course, but, you know, that's going to be a very interesting trend. So really what we're seeing is like I've been saying for, I don't know, 50 years, <laughs> Feels that long, right? Anything that can be digitized and automated will be. And that it's not really bad news, but it's kind of a threat. It feels like a threat to many of us. For example, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, even, or of course doing other work like driving a taxi or so, uh, anything that can be digitized will be because routines is what machines excel at. 
But, you know, when you're looking at things like, say, the checkout in the supermarket, you know, we realize that, yes, a lot of that is automatable, but no, in a small store in the middle of France, a tobacco store, if we're still going to be smoking in the future, you, you need people to have, keep the connection. Right? It's not that easily automated. And, and so we're looking at other examples like cars that can park themselves. Here you see the Tesla that can park itself. And, you know, that's easily automated. But, hey, parking is not that difficult for humans. <laughs> and here's a great uh, bot called GPT-3, right? And this is basically uh, enables you to program a website or an app by typing commands. Right? And check it out on the internet. Basically, you can program something very simple by just typing or speaking. And is that going to make programmers superfluous? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a power tool for programmers because on the bottom line, we can use that to get going. But after that, we still need humans. Paul Saffo, great futurist in San Francisco Institute for the Future, he said years ago, you know, we should not mistake a clear view for a short distance, like the self-driving car. Yes, we are going to live in the future where we can drive and self driving cars, but will they drive like us? And should they? Unlikely. And we don't really have, when we look around in cities, we have some in Palo Alto, like Weibo and others, but, but is that really, I mean, it's been an interesting discussion, but I haven't seen it very much. And really, truly self-driving level five, do we really need that? Level four, we're just fine. So we have to think, keep that in mind when we talk about automation. It's probably not going to happen as quickly as we thought because it seems kind of trivial to drive a car or fly an airplane. You know, when you look at this chart here, for example, about food preparation and about all the other things like construction and cleaning and driving, yeah, a lot of that will be automated. And it's quite clear as we're moving into the future, many jobs will change forever. Uh, but on the other hand, when we look at this chart, uh, we can say, well, the commodity tasks, you know, if they end, it doesn't mean that we're going to be left out of a job. We're just going to move up to other tasks. And if you're 90% commodity, yeah, that is probably going to be the end of that particular job. And that's not really new in history, but it's more extreme now. And that causes a lot of people to worry about what's happening here. And I think it's really important that we look at charts like this, you know, where there's some creation of jobs, for example, in health, scientific and communications, as you can see here. This is from McKinsey, I think, this chart. Uh, and on the bottom left, you know, the manufacturing, financial services, transportation, public administration, that's going to be decreasing. So it's kind of a trade-off between the two. And I think really what it comes down to is what I call the human-only jobs, you know, the jobs that only humans can do. Um, and that part of it, I think, is really interesting to look at because basically human intelligence is not like artificial intelligence and vice versa. And I wouldn't want it to be. I think AI is really mis is a misnomer. I, I prefer to use intelligent assistance, IA, right? because it's really what machines are doing. You know? It's about them being convenient and also competent rather than conscious. Right? And so very important to realize that machines have this, this great ability to decide, to decide between yes and no, you know, binary ways of looking at life. And, and humans don't do that. You know, for us, life isn't yes or no. Uh, very few things in our life are binary. Relationships aren't binary, yes or no. Again, like I'd like to say, you know, didn't marry a husband or your wife because they're efficient or, you know, they can say yes or no. It's, it's because of all the other things in between. Right? So as we move into that future, this is really what makes us, right? It's the things that aren't binary. 
I call them the andro rhythms, the human things, yeah? emotions, creativity, imagination. And I tell you, this is so important. This is what our kids need to learn. Ethics, consciousness, values, compassion. And that is what sets them apart. And that is why we shouldn't let our kids play in, in, in VR or on the iPad forever. We should teach them how to go to the beach and make a sand, uh, sand castle. You know, or or fight something out. You know, but the bottom line really is whatever is easy for a human is hard for a machine, and vice versa. This is the Moravec paradox, right? Uh, like imagination. You know, can we have a machine that has imagination? We can have a machine that can fake imagination and write fake songs, right? I think David Byrne once said, "A machine can write good music, but it can never write great music." And I, I would tend to agree with this. Imagination is what it's all about. I love this picture here with the whale. Right? I mean, just imagining what things could be and, and dreaming about stuff and coming up with things and, and doing things that machines can't perceive because they don't exist. Right? Great quote here from uh, C.K. Uh, Prahabhat, who was an Indian philosopher and businessman and educator. Imagining the future may be more important than analyzing the past. Companies today are no longer resource-bound, they're imagination-bound. And, and uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure he's still alive, but he wrote this when he was something like 80. So very important to be imagination-bound. That is kind of where our future lies in terms of work, uh, to go beyond this. And also really important to realize that the you know, machines are very good at this, but you know, really amazing processing power, limitless processing power, supercomputing, does not equal holistic intelligence. In fact, it doesn't equal intelligence at all. And purely intelligent beings, as many people have said, philosophers, can be terrible rulers. So uh, processing power is, does not equal uh, intelligence or smartness. I think we're going to see millions of jobs between HI and AI. I'll call it HI, human intelligence, and IA, intelligent assistance. Uh, and there's going to be lots of interface and design issues and, and clarification and ethical things and safeguarding and control. Millions of new jobs I see there. And in the music business, where I used to uh, do my um, uh, activities, you know, we've seen this already greatly shift towards this is the new jobs in the music business. Yeah, the meme makers, the digital amplifiers, the royalty miners, the data jockeys. Right? And you know what they, they all entail? Those four things, right? Imagination. Uh, agility, creativity, five things, personality, and resilience. Again, this is something we have to learn, and those are character skills, right? I mean, we don't go to, to uh, get an MBA to develop necessarily our agility, even though that should be part of it, right? These are things that we do for ourselves. Very important to keep in mind as we go into that future. So I want to point out a couple of future job growth areas, and then we'll go to the debate. First of all, it's really quite clear you know, as we're in this world where a lot of doors seem to be shut, especially now with the war that we've experienced, and of course with the end of the COVID crisis, and you know, we're hoping that this will open up a little bit more. But these doors are opening up again, and there's three big open, big openings that I think are most important: big blue technology and science, big green, and big policy. Call that big human. I think those are the places where we're going to see a huge amount of growth. And of course, that's true for technology. Uh, but now we're entering the, the, the state of big green, right? We're entering the, the point in time where doing decarbonization efforts and coming up with new alternatives like we have been pushing now after Glasgow 
that is going to be a huge creator. I always say green is a new digital, right? And if you want a job in the future, clearly it's going to be there together with technology. And, you know, we've moved already in the past in this kind of agricultural revolution, and then it's gone forward into the industrial revolution, creating new jobs, taking agricultural ones away. And then, of course, the digital revolution has taken away the industrial jobs, or not all of them, but many of them. And now we're moving to a sustainability revolution. The World Economic Forum, has, I think, says in the next 10 years, 390 million new jobs, if we put roughly a trillion in, into this uh, development of nature positive economy. So the numbers there, of course, are big, but hey, I like big numbers, right? And it, clearly, you know, if you're looking at what's happening all around us, you climate change technology, I mean, the innovation hype curve is here. It's roughly zero to two years, two to three years, five to 10 years, but not longer than that. The next really big unicorns and next big tech companies, right? They are essentially in climate change technology. And this is something we have to understand, the opportunity that there is for us to make a shift. There's only 2 million people work in the oil industry. So also healthcare, right? Digital healthcare market size is exploding. And digital health, healthcare means using data, getting smarter with data, do things that will create many more jobs and also, of course, make healthcare more affordable right? if we make the right decision. So just one example. And finally, I think the best example I have is, is this. Um, you know, all the concerns that we have about society today, social cohesion, livelihood crises, uh, mental health deterioration, there is a huge amount of jobs there. We just have to pay for them somehow, right? So I can imagine a future job like the social risk manager, managing the social risk of technology or of society. Many, many new jobs there that, that have, we have to understand ethics and all of those things. And that's going to impact how we learn. You know, basically, uh, if, uh, if you learn like a robot, you'll never have a job to begin with. This kind of minority report idea in downloading helicopter program. Yeah? That's not how it works. Unfortunately or fortunately, we do have a body and we have a soul. <laughs> so, so it's not like we can just download information and then, and then do some new work. So most importantly, is, uh, I think, is to forget this kind of concept of the future being calculable, that everything is a numbers game. It's not. The way to understand the future and to develop foresight is to look between the cracks, right? And between the lines, behind the obvious, to come back from the future. And this takes intuition. I think Jeff Bezos once said he loves to do focus groups and look at data and all these things. But in the end, it's all going to be about his imagination, his gut feel, his intuition. And this is where the pyramid comes in. Right? This pyramid shows us what's going to happen with our future. As we're moving clearly in the future that goes away from the bottom line here, intellectual knowledge, data information, up the pyramid. So a couple of symbols here, this idea of you know, having more information, being smarter, that's always good. But intellectual knowledge, right, the really big deal is this, right? the things that make us human, right? The emotions, the understanding, the creativity, the design. And on top of that, of course, the idea of purpose. You know, what makes sense for us humans and, and what creates a good society? And those are the jobs of the future. We can't compete with the computers on the lower level jobs of data and information. We can do that right now to some degree, but generally not. And this is going to be really important that we understand where we are going, especially again, we have kids, you know, this is their turf, uh, moving into a turf where that is becoming the number one job generator, you know, to do the things that machines can't do. 
And that brings me to an important point of efficiency. We need to get away from this idea of saying that everything is about efficiency and optimization and better margins. That, that's over as of late as at least, you know, finally with the COVID crisis. Yeah? It's not about that. It's about recreating new things, coming up with new ideas. Right? It's not about being efficient. It's about being creative. It's about looking forward and having insights and, and studying things. So let me wrap up and say, okay, what do we do now with all of this information? And how do we create jobs and work and good situations in the future? I want to start by one thing is to say that, you know, we, we can't create the future from the past. You know, the future is not just an extension of the present or the past. And it kind of used to be like 20 years ago, we would say, okay, we have cars, we have faster cars, we have cheaper cars, we have bigger engines, you know, we have get more mileage and so on. But now, now all of a sudden the car is actually mobility. The future is not an extension of the present. So the future of energy is not to be just more efficient, right? It's to reinvent where energy comes from. That includes, of course, nuclear fusion, in my view. Huge topic of debate if that is the right direction, right? But really, here's the ticket to the future of work. You know? Understand the next ten, uh, five to 10 years out and then come back from the future. Not to go from today into the future, but to come back from the future. This is why reading is so important. Like check out, of course, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, you know, The Ministry for the Future. Great book telling us to come back from the future. Really, really important. And of course, education, as Buckminster Fuller once said, you know, uh, is going to be one of the biggest industries in the world as a result, because education is where it all starts. And education will be lifelong. It won't just be while we go to school and then off to a job. We're constantly going to learn and do new things and invent new jobs. That's really the ticket to embrace that and, and not to look for a way out where we can easily fix this, okay? The other thing that's really important is uh, the concept of what we're doing here uh, with technology surrounding us. Right? As we're moving into the future where technology is absolutely everywhere. And I used to call this the Vitruvian man, of course, Leonardo da Vinci, Vinci creating the world around us and now it's sort of the Technoluvian man, right? The, the uh, uh, you know, the, the, the person, and of course, the woman as well, surrounded by technology everywhere. And so it's really important for us to figure out the future mindset. As Steve Jobs said, rest in peace, many times, it's really about art and science. It's not just about science. It's not about just about STEM. It's the combination of the two. And that is the ticket for the future of work. Right? It's not to beat machines or to be faster and more logical. Right? It's because our intelligence, as you can see here, right, it's not just one thing. It's social, it's cultural, it's kinesthetic, it's, it's everything, it's emotional, it's all of those things. Right? And it's really important for us to realize which way we are going with this and what we can cultivate in our education and how we talk to people about where this is going. The other thing is that you know, this kind of idea of that we become useless because technology is getting better, I think nothing could be further from the truth. Maybe we don't have to work as much. Maybe we don't have to spend 10 or 12 hours a day at work. We can do other things with our time. Right? We can create a society where work is not number one. Can you imagine that? Well, hard for me to imagine because I work a lot. That's very clearly very, very big topic, right? As you see the future, so you act. And as you act, so you become, Barbara Hubbard said. So we need to see the uh, future in a positive way, 
in, in a way that will create new opportunities for us because that really amplifies everything that we're doing. I know that's very hard to say right now, uh, given the current really lousy situation that we're in, especially here in Europe. And um, again, uh, my heart goes out to the people in the Ukraine on these topics. So we need to still find a, a positive way forward. And that's going to be a tough one for the next couple of weeks, month maybe. So don't be a robot. Make your own future. Design your own future. Right? Take a hold of it as you can and build your own future and help your kids figure out what their future is. As I like to say many times before, you know, the key question is not what, what does the future bring as if it was kind of independent of us, but what kind of future do we want? Because we are creating that future. So thanks for your time. I know that was a little bit longer than planned and some, some technical things, always some technical things when you do this online stuff, but we're going to nail it down eventually. And now we're going to get some questions from you. So let's, um, let's bring in some questions and see what people are saying. Uh, feel free to post questions and, and we'll, we'll get to most of them if we can, right? So when we arrive to a certain level, let's say a breaking point of automation and robotization in all sectors, what happens to the unqualified or incompetent? You know, that's a very good question. I think many of the uh, incompetent parentheses or unqualified at the time would need to make a shift to rediscover what competency means, or we have to train them to take a look and see what competencies they can rediscover. You know, Buckminster or Fuller also once said that what happens at school is as we go to school, we get degenious, right? So we're learning things and to function and everything, and we still have that, but it's lost. And yes, the reasonable question is when 10 million people that drive cars for a living, you know, get commoditized and we only have one or two or three million left, what do the other ones do? Well, that's kind of like what happened in, in agriculture, right? 90% of people used to work in agriculture in Europe, now it's 2%. And that process can be uh, accompanied by state programs and by, you know, by automation taxes, Bill Gates was suggesting. I know it's a tough topic. Nobody really wants taxes. Right? I don't think that people are in principally incompetent on anything, really. It's just a question of having enough education, enough possibilities, and enough encouragement to do that. So, yeah, I mean, clearly that is a situation where if we're going to switch to the idea of working less for the same money and maybe a basic income in 10, 15, 20 years, that is a whole different world that currently is inconceivable because, you know, we live to work, we work to live. Uh, it's hard to imagine how that can change. But I think technology allows that to happen. And the important thing is, you know, technology will give all the tools and the possibilities, but we have to have the telos, you know, the wisdom, Greek word, uh, to use those tools. Very, very important question. And I think this is really what the whole debate is going to be all about. Great. So that was, uh, I forgot to read the name. So we have Space Orbison. Thanks, Space Orbison. Robots have always been a fantasy of the rich to serve them without question. Mm, yeah, that's true and it isn't true. You know, I think in many ways robots are already all around us and you can see the numbers of robots increasing everywhere, whether it's in grocery stores or in man manufacturing, or of course, Tesla. And, you know, Amazon is an interesting uh, case in point. Lots of studies on this shown that Amazon is buying more and more and more robots and inventing more robots, um, but also hiring more and more people. Last year, hired, two, hired 250,000 people. If those jobs are any good, I don't know, but I, I certainly hope they are. I think robots are going to be everywhere, and there's nothing wrong per se with robots. Yeah? 
as long as we use them like we use a power tool. And I think we're going to see robots printing houses, 3D printing. Uh, we're going to see robots uh, doing transportation and cleaning and all these things. But we have to figure out how to share the benefit of this productivity. The biggest problem right now, for example, in America is that productivity is increasing because of technology, but salaries are staying the same or even declining. Right? And the amount of jobs are also not being increased. And this is something that, of course, requires a really a, a deft social strategy, not just a sort of a, 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 an idealistic program. Thank you for the question, Space Orbison. Okay, Don Wayne, that's good. <laughs> well, you guys have some creator's name. I hope that is your real name, right? Yuval Harari imagines a future where you have to reinvent your career multiple times. Oh, I would totally agree with that during your lifetime because of the changes. What's it might take? Well, clearly Yuval is a very smart guy. He, he tends to be sometimes a little bit nihilistic, uh, which means not believing in very many things, but I guess that's part of the, uh, of the background. But, you know, I, I have the belief that uh, we're perfectly capable to do that. It's something that many of us, many of you that I hear in this, in this show, probably know, already know how to do, how to reinvent, how to pivot. And, you know, I lived in America for 17 years where it's basically like something goes wrong, you make something up. And then now you go to Brazil, you know, Brazilians have what's called Jejinho, which is to make up stuff. So you don't have a, a, a power lift for your car when you have a flat tire, you find some people to stuff uh, wooden blocks under it. You make up things, right? I think we're going to be constantly looking for new career options. We're going to constantly also be more fragmented. Uh, we're going to keep learning. And of course, learning is great now because we can learn everywhere. And one thing we have to do is we have to figure out how to get the gig economy into the social security system. Because it can't be that people are being abused just because they're working in the gig economy. Uh, and that seems to be one of the major challenges behind, you know, TaskRabbit and Uber and others, you know, to see how we can build a social structure. And that will take a lot of debate to get that onto the same agenda. Yeah, good question. Thank you, Don Wayne. Another question. Okay, is this also not going to create a huge digital divide, says jo Jonathan Ain. Absolutely. And I think we already have a huge problem with that because, you know, people like us, you know, like myself, let's say for myself, let's say top 10% or so, right, of the world, not the top 1%, uh, you know, we, we can take advantage of these things like virtual reality and, of course, having computers. And, you know, many people found out in the COVID crisis that the Internet isn't fast enough to have support their kids to go online and study. That needs to change, and we need to put programs in place for that. Yeah, and, and I think developed countries have a real challenge here because uh, to really participate in the digital economy is a question of connectivity, education, training, and of course, uh, the willingness to jump in. And the digital divide has been pushed by COVID even further, you know, because clearly the, the poor families uh, have not been able to recuperate and work from home very easily if you live in a, in a room, in a house, you know, flat with 20 people sharing it, right? Very hard to work from home. So that is something that we need to look at. And I really think we need to have a digital dividend you know, to pay out to people to get out of this place and um, be able to f address the issue and to also have device leasing programs and all these things that have been going on for quite some time but haven't really been successful enough. And imagine if we had the digital divide with the metaverse, you know, with virtual reality 
and people who have $5,000 in a T1 internet connection, they can have stellar experiences. Everybody else will lose their job because of VR, right? And that is more uncertainty and more, more issues like this. And so this is a real issue. I think inequality is a, is a great divider and a great cause of uh, crime and, of course, general dystopia. Right now, of course, with COVID and also now with the crisis in Ukraine, you know, there, there is a lot of tendency to despondency, you know, to say, well, nothing will ever work. You know? I think just to give one heads up on my next show for next week, which is the future of democracy, uh, exactly a week from today, I will talk about this. But basically, I, I have high hopes that what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia right now will lead to a structural change of the entire Eastern political sphere. Can't quite imagine how that would. I can't quite imagine how it would not, but I will have an answer for you on that next week. Uh, complicated topic. In the meantime, I do hope we'd see some rapid peacemaking progress there. So very difficult to feel empowered in the face of pandemic and war. Uh, Lisa Lotter links. So yes, Ms. Lotter. Hey, greetings to Copenhagen. Um, will the external game changes have a tendency of speeding up the human intersection? Yeah. I totally agree. You know, it's, it kind of seems like it will get worse before it gets better. And the benefits of the COVID crisis have been quite a few, but it's hard to see them you know, when you've not had work or when some people you know have died from COVID. And there's you know, all around us people, in, or you have long COVID, or you know, it's hard to see them. But I think what really happened in COVID is that we were pushed to a reset point of saying, you know, we have to reinvent how healthcare works, we have to reinvent how we work together. We have to collaborate more. And one thing that came out of uh, the Ukraine-Russia crisis already now is this huge collaboration against Putin uh, that stretches across all industries and countries. And I think it shows that when the shit hits the fan, and it really did, or it does, right, then we can actually perform. It kind of reminds me in many ways of what happened after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where it took 14 years to come up with nuclear non-proliferation treaties. And now we're at a, at a, at a real pivot point to where collaboration is the ticket uh, and the only ticket, really, and, and coming together without you know, making political statements on this. But clearly, I feel very empowered by the potential of saying that we have a reboot point. And it, it's, it's kind of like when everything is going wrong, then you, you can make a leap. And I, I tell you, I, I keep talking, talking about this. The next 10 years, we're going to see mind-boggling change at a speed that is unprecedented. And providing great opportunity and providing great hope for us you know, if we have the right view of the future. And Liz Lotta, of course, you're also a futurist. So in my point of view, it isn't the job of forecasting or foresighting is to predict the future, is to be better prepared for it right? and to be more aware of it. That's the job. Right? And I think when you do that, the future can be bright. Thank you for the question. More questions. Uh, Alexander Linder, do you see cultural differences in like Japan where robots have a soul based on Shintoism? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I almost went to a robot funeral once in Japan. <laughs> that would have been interesting to watch. But yeah, of course, there are huge cultural differences. And in many countries, working remotely or working virtually or, or living with robots is normal. Here in Switzerland, where I am, it certainly isn't. And I think it would be hard pressed to find somebody who wants to do a face recognition lie detector test to get a job at a Swiss bank. 
right? And I think that would certainly be a very, very difficult debate here. So culture always eats technology for breakfast. I mean, culture is the dominating factor of success. It's a dominating factor, of course, of happiness. And I think ultimately that is really where we have to come to a common denominator. You know, for example, if we're all going to work in the cloud, what is the global social structure? If we're all going to become virtual and, and be we, VR is like, and I got to show you this one, right? So if you're going to be like this and work virtually and, you know, who's going to ensure and take care of my uh, beautiful um, avatar in, you know, uh, going back to the reality check here. But anyway, um, I think these are big questions, right? So cultural differences, of course, they are huge. And we have to come on the same page on very basic things like artificial general intelligence and the automation tax. And just like we did with the global tax treaty now, for the global corporate tax. Those things are going to be crucial. And I see the European Commission really pushing hard on lots and lots of positive things. Thorny issues and, of course, sometimes overly bureaucratic. But that's what we've got right now. Another question. So, Rodolfo Keller, must technological progress determine the kind of jobs humans should find boring? You know, that is a good question. I think sometimes people take pleasure in routine jobs. And, and I wouldn't say necessarily that's a bad thing. And I would also be hesitant to say that, you know, this job is a commodity job or it's not. Because it, it just isn't always as simple or black and white as that. You know, sometimes, sometimes we're looking at future job scenarios and it's black or white. Like, you know, this job will be taken, this one not. I don't think it's that, that easy. I think a lot of banking will be automated and investing, and we can use, of course, uh, the Web 3.0 solutions and digital money and all of that. But will that really cut out people? And also, if there are routines that people enjoy doing, like driving, uh, or, of course, flying an airplane, <laughs> which isn't in a certain way fancy routine, right? But we still want the human there, because we're not going to trust to fly the machine without a pilot. And overall, there's lots of reasons why that wouldn't work, for example, it's not going to save so much money to not have a pilot. I mean, there's only one or two, maybe three, not 15. Right? And so these questions are more multifaceted. And I would actually leave some room for human routine um, in many ways, because I think it's also part of life that we do this. And, and it's part of the boringness of, of some things that gets us somewhere else. But this is a whole different debate. I think in the end, we're going to see that technology will be a power tool for us, we have to get used to using it, and we have to also put limitations on it so that it doesn't get carried away. As I said in my book, you know, embrace technology, but don't become it. And this, by the way, is one reason why Facebook stock is tanking, because they've become technology, and people are starting to realize it. I talked about this for years, and nobody was going to pay any attention. But hey, if you can, sell now. Just kidding. Next question, please. So, uh, Mahesh. What would you recommend to kids in high school and college? What should they learn now? You know, I'm a great believer in that we have to be technologically adept. I think anybody who is not technologically adept doesn't know how the internet works. It doesn't know how apps work and, you know, doesn't understand what goes on in the cloud. You know, that, that's going to be a tough one in the future. But, but is it the ticket, like in India, where, you know, roughly one million people graduate as engineers every year? That can't be the ticket to the future because, you know, low-level engineering is being replaced by AI and by virtual 
digital twins and virtualization and VR. And, and you know, we'll take a little bit for that to come to fruition. But clearly, the ticket for that is to find a way to do something that machines can't do. And if you make a list of the things that machines can't do, uh, also in the next, say, 10, 20 years, until we get to the what's called a singularity, different discussion, and superintelligence, which we should not have, you know, basically what we're seeing here is a long list of things that humans are very good at. Again, the moral edge paradox, right? Whatever is hard for a human is easy for a machine and vice versa. So intuition, understanding, foresight, creativity, emotions, empathy, compassion, ethics, values. And that's what our kids need to, need to study. I think we need to go back to the humanities in school and technology and science. And of course, you have to make a decision eventually. But you know, just uh, putting all the money into STEM, education, science, technology, engineering, math, to my view, that, that is ill-guarded and ill-advised. Because in the end, it's going to be what we can do that is only ours. So that's the humanities. Right? And again, Steve Jobs, right? that's, that was his constant story about the combination of art and machines and technology and, and science. Right? And also the other thing is, as I said earlier in the presentation, the three big sectors, big tech, big green, big human, right? they will require skills in all different facets. And, and many of them will require skills across all of them. And that's something that only humans can do. So this is my advice to you know, your kids, is to actually make them into better humans, right? to understand other people and to be emotional and to make a connection, to be able to negotiate, to understand the world. Now, sometimes maybe it's better if we don't send our kids to get an MBA, but we'll, we'll fund them to start to do a startup, right? or we have them travel around the world. Maybe there's something where they characters are being groomed in a different way. And again, don't forget, we're talking lifelong learning here. right? So first, our kids have to learn how to learn. And as Alvin Toffler said, unlearn, relearn, right? start again. And that is going to be our fate. And I think even when you're 80 years old in 20 years, you're going to participate in that learning pro progress uh, in, and the uh, process and the whole cultivation of uh, senior people as silver servers are going to be part of that. Thanks for the question, Manish. So Robert Sean McCraw. I like the fact that you encourage EQ versus IQ as a big believer in this. Do you see EQ getting digitized to a degree? In particular, since digital mediums are more of the norm, however, how does one keep the essential elements without losing it? You know, I, I very much doubt that we can digitize uh, the true human intelligence because you know, it is based on human agency. And we have consciousness, we have spirituality, we're not just a brain, you know, and we're not just a body, and we're not just data. And we're, you know, we're, we're much more multinary, right, not binary. And yes, I grant you that eventually maybe there's a machine that can learn that and that can simulate it. But simulation is not the same as being. Right? The, the actual existence, which requires many other things that machines have no idea of, and they shouldn't have an idea of, in my view, that's a whole different cup of tea. You know, there's been lots of calculations, for example, shown that even the fanciest iPhone with the, with the nicest new lens, you know, only captures two or three percent of the visuals than the human eye. And then humans are more than eyes also, right? Nose and ears and 
everything that, so we see the world like this and the machine sees the world like this. So I kind of doubt whether it's a good idea to pursue EQ and machines. I don't see the value of that because, you know, as Stuart Russell keeps saying in his book, Human Compatible, we should focus on them being competent, not conscious. And to me, EQ borders on the conscious part of it. And why would we want that? Yeah, so that we can have companions that can, you know, make our lives easier and more convenient. I think that's kind of a, a misguided idea. And this is why, you know, one of the, my main uh, uh, peeves I have with the singularity and the transhumanism movement is this idea that we can become superhuman and all problems are solved. I think when we're superhuman, we're not going to be human anymore. And so, little point of that. Uh, great question, Robert. Thank you very much. It looks like there's a lot more questions coming here. You guys are really letting me have it today. Thank you. So, we have Sinon. Can artificial intelligence solve climate crisis? Um, okay. Well, I mean, it's quite clear, as I said earlier, big blue, big green, right? That's the ticket. Right? However, you know, technology by itself does not solve anything. Technology is a tool. And now in the climate crisis we're seeing, we have to apply the tool correctly. We have to put money to it. We have to change our laws. We have to change our habits. Uh, we have to uh, put different priorities forth. Right? It's this whole swing towards a new world where technology together with science can solve these problems, but we're going to have to find the $100 trillion somewhere. And now what I'm really worried about is with the military build-up that's going to follow now, that we take that money away from climate change. And, that's extremely worrisome. You may have seen the IPCC report from last week showing that it's basically like fork in the road moment, right? It, it is, if we don't get this done now, we're never going to stop at 1.5 or even two. And that could be a truly miserable future for our kids, which I personally don't want to be involved with or support. So it's a very, very big discussion. Technology is the key, science is the key, but we have to make the right decision of where we put the money. For example, my point is, AI will not tell us that we should be paying developing countries to not pollute, right? This is, of course, the argument behind the uh, carbon coin, as Kim Stanley Robinson calls this in, in, his, uh, in his really great work, The Ministry for the Future. You know, this is the logic, and the logic may at some times be not logical at all, right? This is just basically the understanding, if we want to live in a world where India, Brazil, and Indonesia uh, are not going to just do what we did, you know, then we would explode. So AI is not going to tell us that. So keep in mind, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, you know, algorithms know the value of everything, the numbers of everything, but the feeling or the ethics of nothing. So that can be helpful for that, but not with us, without us making the guidance. Thank you, Sinan, for the question. We have more questions. You guys are really keeping me busy now. That's, that's going to cost you overtime. So Caroline S. Uh, Asante. So in the UK, I have a 15-year-old. Everything he's learning doesn't include ethics, values, or, or intuition. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the educational system is totally on the wrong path here. Um, it's teaching us to behave like robots. And if your kid's going to a place like this, you should consider other places, but also look at your personal way of educating them. You know, I think it's a, it's a difficult decision to redo education 
as the, these are very heavily government-oriented organizations. But you know, looking at Finland, where that's already happening, or Estonia, right, or other countries where education is reaching out into a new world, getting people for a new situation. I mean, imagine ten years from now, fifty percent in the cloud, fifty percent new work, constant changing environments. That's going to require ingenuity. And where do you learn ingenuity? You know, do our kids are learn, are they learning that at school? Especially in the UK, it's like yeah, it's kind of like a uh, a boot camp for you know just just learning skills and then applying them later. That's not how things work anymore. And that needs to really be tackled. And I think governments are getting wise to this. All over the world, having alternative education, it's not a surprise that many tech innovators went to art school. Right, that's nothing new there. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have science and technology. Of course, we should have that, but not to the exclusivity of saying that you know if you're a scientist or engineer, that's the ticket and that's it. No, it's not. It depends, of course, very heavily what's called on your talents and who you are. Most importantly, in the future for our kids, is going to be their personality. Right? Are they? Do they have a clue? Do they understand others? Are they open? Are they flexible? Can they handle stress? Can they be agile? I mean, these are things that they learn in cultural ways, not necessarily going, you know, to gymnasium here in Switzerland or, or you know, college somewhere. But in a good college, you would learn that. I think that's one of the benefits. I think of going to places like MIT, or you know, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston, where I did learn quite a few social skills, despite of all the heavy scales and stuff that I had to go through. Thanks for the questions. We're going to take two more questions, and then it's time for the hour to wrap. So, Salih Al-Qaidi, yeah, yeah, it is available on YouTube. We're going to cut it up a little bit, and the live recording will remain on YouTube. Just go to my YouTube channel, goodtube.com. That is a joke, but uh, basically it is uh, just a shortcut to my YouTube channel. And before I forget it, I want to uh, give you a gift. of If you haven't seen my book, Technology vs. Humanity, it's been out for six years. You can download it for free using that QR code that's going to show up here on the top that my, uh, my uh, team member, Marcia, is going to bring in in a moment. So as you, if you scan that code, you can get a free download of an ebook um, of this and, and read about technology versus humanity. In return, I would ask you to Twitter a little bit and spread the news and all about this. And also, I want to keep reminding you before I take the final question um, that next week we have a really important show on the future of democracy. That is one hairy topic. I'm not going to have a lot of conclusive answers by then, but I, I do have quite a few ideas in which way I want to go. I appreciate you coming in. And just go to futuresguard.com slash talks 5 and you'll see the sign-up on Eventbrite. Of course, it'll be on YouTube and on LinkedIn as well. So the final question or comment. So well, we have any, do we have any? Yes, please. So Derek Watson. You read Scary Smart by Mo Godot, and the scary is really very scary. My question is, how do we put an end, uh, an on-off button on AI, keeping it locked down? Well, clearly, again, this is not a, a, a black or white question. Um, the question on AI is a control question, and the control question can only be answered together by everybody who's involved in building potentially generally intelligent machines with AGI or ASI, superintelligence. And I think that danger is actually a lot bigger than climate change because climate change, we're, we're doing it now, it's gonna be a pain, 
but we have the wherewithal to do it. And the decision mechanism progress in 20 years, I think, will be at the point to where we can fix what we have created. And that's going to be painful and expensive, but we'll do it. The other thing about AI is that, you know, we're not really realizing what we are creating here, another kind of nuclear force, you know, a very basic force, right? So an on-off button, I don't think it will be an on-off button. I think it will be a, a, a global collaboration like the nuclear proliferation treaties uh, that will include collaboration about what we should or should not be doing and will punish uh, parties that are going astray like we do now in nuclear. Huge discussion point, you know. We should not pour out the baby with the bathwater. You know, basic intelligent assistance and AI on a basic level will be extremely useful for many things, but we should always question it. And one of my key things about AI is that we should always keep the human in the loop, even if it's more cumbersome, more inefficient, if it costs more, right? Keeping the human in the loop, keeping the human control factor. And again, like I said earlier, we're going to see millions of new jobs on the interface of HI and AI, right? And, and that is a, a huge area of growth where we have to have the knowledge of technology and humanity to do that job. So I want to thank you very much for, for being here. It's been a great show, and I will try next time to keep my presentation shorter and to fix the various technological flaws. So please do take a look at my film, The Good Future. That has been going crazy in the last couple of days. Lots and lots of people are commenting on it, thegoodfuturefilm.com. And we also just uh, created a new one. It's called What You Need to Know uh, About the Future. Uh, and that is at win2k.com, of course, also on YouTube. And it's a short sort of summary of everything you need to know about the future. We're going to do, do a new series here as well. And if you happen to be in Salvador, Brazil, I will be there for the International Olympic Committee on this uh, in this month. That's going to be, I think, the 18th of March. I look forward to seeing you there. And I'll be at Dubai in Dubai at the government, International Government Summit the end of the month, I think the 29th and 30th. In the meantime, stay connected. Sign up for my newsletter. I want to thank my team, Slavon and Marcia, and also Stephanie for uh, making this work, and all my webmaster, Ben, and everybody else who's been helping me out to reinvent while we're going through this crisis. So live long and prosper. Don't give up hope. I think the future is better than we think. Every two weeks, I'll have a new show for you, audio and video, on what the future holds, what's important today, and how we're going to design what I call the good future. Visit GerdTalks.com for more details, schedules, and updates, and I hope to see you on the show.